Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome to The Full Ratchet. I'm Nick Moran, and today we're interviewing Charlie O'Donnell about DealFlow. Charlie was the first analyst for Union Square Ventures and also worked at First Round Capital prior to raising his own micro VC fund out in New York City. As usual, we'll start off with an intro, dive into a series of questions on the topic, and then finish up the interview with what Charlie is currently working on and some advice for angel and startup investors. After the interview, I'll recap some of the key takeaways and then we'll wrap up with a tip of the week. Okay, let's get into the interview on the topic of deal flow. Where do investors find startups to invest in? Today, we are fortunate to have Charlie O'Donnell. He is sole partner at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures and also has a blog at thisisgoingtobebig.com. Charlie, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, No problem at all. I uh, appreciate the ask, and I'm happy to do it. So I wanted to kick things off by hearing about your pre-Brooklyn Bridge Ventures story. So where did your journey into venture investing begin? So I started out at the institutional limited partner uh, side of things. And so I was working at the General Motors Pension Fund, which is one of the largest institutional investors in venture capital. They've been doing it since, I think, the late 70s. And they are major LPs in most of the big names you know of. Um, you know, the, the batteries and Excels and, and all those types of folks and uh, are very long-term investors. And so I was working as an analyst on their team and in the, the venture side of that was on their venture team and was taking pitches from funds who were raising. And in 2004, I took a pitch, well, I almost didn't take a pitch actually, uh, one of the other folks at GM came in and said, you know, I'm looking at this New York-based $100 million fund. Will you uh, take a look at it with me? And I almost passed on that meeting because the idea of doing a New York-based venture capital fund in 2004 sounded like a terrifically stupid idea because most of what we were doing was Silicon Valley and Boston and... New York didn't seem like the kind of place where you'd want to build a business. Now, I'm I'm glad I got roped into that meeting because that turned out to be Fred Wilson and Brad Burnham from Union Square Ventures. And that's how I met them. Uh, I started building a relationship with Fred through our respective blogs. And even though 
it turned out that that fund was a bit small for GM's bite size. Uh, I built a good enough relationship with them to become their first analyst. So they wound up hiring me as soon as they raised their first fund. And I, I worked there for almost two years. So for folks in the audience that don't know Fred Wilson or, or Union Square, I encourage you to check out their blogs and follow them on Twitter. They are just excellent content producers and um, visionaries on the uh, the venture investment side. So And they're nice people, too. Yeah. I haven't been fortunate enough to speak with Fred yet, but hopefully we'll get him on the podcast. Yeah. And, and from there, it was really fortuitous timing to be in New York at that time because the being in venture at a fund in New York in the beginning of 2005 was just, it was the very beginning of this sort of New York resurgence. And so I feel like a lot of the success in my career is right place at right time and having the wind at my back from the growth of New York from this, this place where I almost didn't want to take a meeting for a fund to the second largest venture capital community. Uh, so that being early to that community and getting to know the very small number of players early on uh, and all throughout the group was, was, I think, really important. So, you know, a couple of years later, I got asked by Josh Koppelman of First Round Capital to help them build out their New York presence in 2009 after I had worked on a startup. And so that's how I wound up joining First Round. So, uh, you know, getting a chance to work with VCs like Union Square and First Round, um, and now that I've done my own fund, I, I, I joke that uh, I have worked for the three best venture capital funds in New York. Including Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. So so let's talk uh, a little later about sort of the New York scene, and um, for now, let's jump into the topic. The topic today is deal flow. Can you just give us a, an intro to, to what this term means? Yeah, sure. Most basically, the the opportunity to make investments. And the opportunity is, you know, an an in-progress transaction or a transaction that is soon to be in progress. And, And there's really two aspects of it in venture because, you know, unlike the public stock market, you know, like everybody has equal access to deal flow in the public stock market. You could just look at the list of publicly traded companies and pick any one of those, put your money to work. And they don't have to approve you. There's full disclosure. There's no guesses as to who trades on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and all of other places. It's, it's public. But in the venture capital world, there is uneven access to deal flow. Right? If there are two people in the office next door to me in the converted warehouse that I work in, in in Brooklyn, building a startup, I know about them and you don't. And and that means I have that deal flow and you don't. Um, there's no public listing or requirement. I mean, there's certainly more transparency with things like, you know, Crunchbase and AngelList. But a lot of times those companies that are on there, uh, they put themselves on there maybe after they've raised their initial round. So in the in the seed world, um, that that is not a comprehensive set. Uh, and this, so there's, there's one is a function of awareness. Like, do you even know that that deal exists? And then two is how do you get into that deal? Right? Because if there is a great team with a great idea with great traction, 
you, this is a negotiated sale. You can't just cold email them and say, oh, yeah, or this is a good deal. I'd like to come in. Because, you know, they're only raising 750 grand or a million. They, they have that circled from experienced folks, and they don't know you from a hole in the wall. So you, you just can't get into that deal. There's no window for you to get in. And uh, so the two aspects of, of, act, of deal flow are awareness and, I, I guess, approval or ability. Got it. So on that first point, the awareness point, how do you find great startups and how do you access uh, these deals before others find them? I think a lot of it depends on the market. So, for example, the New York market is very different than the San Francisco market. I think the my perception of the San Francisco market is that there is a, a lot of pedigree in the market. So there are people who, you know, there's, there's a multi-generational history of successful investing and exits and company growth. And so if you perceive yourself to be a top-tier team, and teams out there look more like top-tier teams, right? They're, you know, so-and-so who led user experience for Dropbox. Well, you know, that, that's pretty good. Dropbox is a pretty good user experience, right? Those teams not only look more obviously better on paper, but the investors have histories. And so what tends to happen is, I think 85% of the deal flow comes from a very limited number of touch points in the ecosystem uh, where... You know, if you're plugged into Y Combinator and the top, call it six or seven super angel micro VC type funds, and you know a critical mass of Google and Facebook and Twitter engineers, and you've got some inroads into Stanford, that feels like a good chunk of the deal flow. Whereas in New York, it's just not like that at all. It is incredibly flat, very diverse. FinTech people don't necessarily talk to ad tech people. They do more and more, but um, companies are very under the radar here. And there are many qualified entrepreneurs who know their space that are simply not connected to the venture ecosystem at all. And I just met with two founders yesterday who have previously bootstrapped a, a business in drove it to $7 million a year of annual revenue and are now starting something that is a little more venture-backable. And they just literally did not know any other VCs other than peripheral awareness of who tends to blog a lot. Um, and that, that generally, you know, so so in one sense, it's, it's great because just about anybody has access to that team. If you would have shown up to their door and said, I'd like to write a check, like you can pretty much get into that deal. On the other hand, like you can get into that deal because nobody knows who they are. They are. So how do you know who they are? Um, and and so uh, each market is very different. And I think in in New York, it's just as much of a function of knowing the players in the market who could intro you to those deals, such as lawyers, who may be the the, the counsel for those companies as they incorporate and set up their options and all that sort of stuff, to, you know, accelerators and media, whose job it is to cover these companies, to the founders of companies they may have worked for, 
the two young people at some successful ad tech company maybe breaking off onto their own to do a new thing. And maybe the first person they talk to is the, the CEO of that successful company to explain why they're leaving. But it's, it's just as much of a function of knowing those folks as it is being known, right? Generating inbound so that you can't know everyone, but are you on the top of the list of, if I was to raise money, who would I like to approach? If you reflect on your deal flow that you've gotten, what are the main sources that they've come from, both in volume and in quality? Well, I think the underpinnings of a lot of my deal flow is, call it my media footprint. And that could be everything from the fact that I've been blogging for the last 10 plus years and, you know, have one of the 10 most widely read VC blogs. And I also run a weekly mailing list of uh, tech events and commentary in the New York market. It goes out to about 8,500 people that I've been building up over the last four and a half years. And so, you know, when, when 8,500 people get an email from you Monday morning at 7.45, like clockwork, and all I have to do is hit reply to pitch you, that's a real advantage. And then I, I speak at another tech event probably every other week. I, I throw a lot of events. So I throw developer events, and uh, I do group dinners where we all split the costs and we go neighborhood by neighborhood. So Greenpoint and the Lower East Side and Brooklyn, and, you know, we, we even did a Hoboken one out in Jersey. And so uh, basically the, the sheer number of touch points that I'm having, whether it's just an email, whether it's a dinner, whether it's somebody in the audience, I'm making a lot of people aware that like what I do and, and uh, that I even exist. And so regardless of whether or not I get an intro from somebody to a deal, 99.9% of the time, like that person at least was like peripherally aware of me that I do venture and has a positive opinion that they, they get an introduction from a lawyer, but they say, yeah, you know, the reason why I asked for this introduction is because I really liked your post about startup valuations or something like that. Got it. Well, I mean, if that's not a testament to getting involved and getting plugged in, then uh, I don't know what is. But hopefully we can all have a, an 8,500-person uh, newsletter like you at some point. Anyway, yeah, let's... It's, it's like somebody somebody will ask, how do you start a fund? They say, okay, we'll start out with a big newsletter. But one thing I'd actually also add is I went back and looked at all my deals, and I said, if I were a time traveler, what day would I have had to be present for to get that deal? In other words, like, there's a series of events that led to that becoming an opportunity, and it often starts way before the pitch. Sometimes it's an intro to a person that's an intro to somebody else that's, a, you know, and if I trace that back, and oftentimes the key moment is 18 to 24 months in advance. Wow. So you're, you need to get way out in front of some of these things to be involved and to capitalize. Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes you're meeting people before they have a company. Right. And then when they decide to start a company, you're just naturally the first person that they're going to talk to. Okay. Well, if we think of deal flow like a sales funnel, 
right? You're getting all these startups in, you're evaluating them, you're you're kicking some out. What are the major steps in your process to arrive at a yes or no investment? And how do you accelerate that process? Yeah, sure. So uh, right outside the, the door of my office, I have a uh, bed of hot coals. And uh, they have to run through that during the pitch process because startups are really hard. They can't run through the hot coals. That's not even going to bother funding them. <laughs> so in addition to that, sometimes the way I, I think about it is it's not about what criteria do you have that you'll be successful, but what are the obvious things that this thing can get tripped up on? And... 95% of the deals, maybe 98% of the deals are just completely unworkable on their face. And, and that is more based on a, a, a very simple, very basic set of criteria. So, so most of the deals are quick passes. And they're quick passes because, you, you know, the market is not big enough that they're playing it. Like, even if you won, even if you did the thing you're telling me you're going to do, like, you just, there's not enough money in it for you. You know, that's just math, right? Maybe you can build a profitable business, but it's not a business that, that fits with my investment criteria. Um, maybe they are not the appropriate person to be doing that kind of thing, right? So there's an opportunity in the local merchant space for some new marketing and loyalty program. It's a really killer idea. But you have to be able to build a local sales team. And that, to me, is like a magical sale. You know, the idea of walking into a pizzeria and selling them tech, that's, that's, um, that's, that's harder than enterprise sales. Because in enterprise sales, there's a person whose title it is makes it obvious that they are the buyer. And, and their job is to solve certain kinds of problems, and they act rationally. You know, the pizzeria is not like that. And so if you haven't done local sales, I, there's no way I could even think of backing you for, for that kind of business. But in other businesses, I might do a a pre-product company with, without a lot of traction. So, you know, it's, it's figuring out what is the appropriate skill set of the founder you're looking to back in a certain area. Um, and I think uh, the third biggest hurdle is, is their plan appropriate for the resources that they're using? So it could be a very good idea to build an elevator to the moon, but if you're only raising 25 k to do it, that, there's all sorts of problems with that, right? <laughs> yeah. you're, I mean, you're, you're you're literally building a bridge to nowhere. Um, I've, I've seen the under-ask many times. Yeah, yeah, right? Uh, or it's just very clear that because you're under-asking, you are not savvy. The reality of how difficult the thing that you're doing is is not apparent to you. And, and you are, it's under-researched, unrealistic, you know. And it's almost like you're signaling to you I don't think I will be successful in this fundraise, so I'm only asking for 100 k Right. Well, if you don't think you're going to be successful, then you probably won't be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So, okay, so let's say they get through those hurdles. Then, then how do you accelerate the good ones through the process? Yeah, sure. Um, and just from a logistical point of view, I, I always start with an email. Uh, me personally, I have a very high bar to taking a meeting. And I, and I think the more experienced you are in venture, the better you are at fishing out who you want to take a meeting with. And, and I don't think it's such a bad thing to, to take a lot of meetings up front if you're early to get a sense of what you like and what you don't like and what founders you feel like you resonate with. 
But I'm at the point now where I actually only take probably about two to three pitch meetings a week, um, which is way less than most VC firms at my stage do. I, they're probably taking two to three a day. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's not a function of deal flow. I'm getting just as much deal flow as anybody else. I'm just cutting off a lot of things at the email stage and giving myself a hard look and saying, am I, I going to get there on this? I, I just don't think so. Like I, this just does not resonate with me at all. And what I find more often is it's easy to tell yourself, well, but what if they're really compelling when they come in? And what I find more often than not is if they can't even compel me in an opening email, then the chances of them blowing my mind in a meeting uh, seems very small. And I don't think my bar is that high for, for meetings. I mean, compared to the eventual difficulty of building a successful startup. Um, and so, so I, I kind of know what I'm looking for in a, in a, in a meeting. And sometimes I'll just, you know, I'll take an email and I'll ask a few questions. And, and then in fact, based on the questions that I ask, they, they answer them really well and they're really thoughtful about it. And it shows they put a lot of work into it. And, and then I'll take a meeting. So it always starts with an email, you know, then I'll sit through a meeting and, and to be honest, unless you're exploring an area where you've decided, you know what, I'm just going to meet with anybody who has anything to say about Bitcoin because I want to learn. My own personal thing is, if I don't think that I could do that deal, I won't take a meeting. So it's almost your deal to lose if you get to a meeting with me. And and in fact, most times they do lose the deal in the meeting. You know, they, they come in, the idea sounds really interesting, and then the the execution or the founder's thoughtfulness on how they're going to lay this out or, or you, you you poke at the marketing plan and you realize they, they don't actually have any idea how to market to this audience. I mean, something just inevitably falls down in the meeting. But, you know, I, I, I wouldn't take a meeting, at least not without telling them ahead of time, I really couldn't get there on this deal. Um, you know, and sometimes there are meetings where I say, listen, I don't think this is a big enough opportunity, but I really think your thing should exist, and I'd love to be helpful. And I'll just tell them, right, this is not an investor meeting. I just think what you're doing is pretty cool. I'd love to see it happen. It's just not for me. And if, and if you want to prioritize fundraising meetings, great. Go do that. We'll meet another time. Yeah, no, I hear you. More so than trying to find all the bright, shiny objects, I'm looking more for the red flags and reasons to kick them out of the funnel and focus my time on the good ones. And it sounds like, uh, to a certain degree, you do that as well. So, Yeah, what my portfolio winds up being is a set of 30 or 35 companies that could work. You don't know for sure at the seed stage that they will work, but there, there's no obvious reason why they wouldn't, except for... I, like, I want to eliminate almost every risk other than the risk of startups just being really hard. And well, if I can get there, then I'm like, all right, I'll take a shot at that. Yeah. So I want to get into this, this focus question. Do you believe that startup investors should restrict the deal flow that they evaluate based on their domain expertise or a vertical market, geography, et cetera? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I need to tell other people what to do, but I, I find for myself, I mean, I, I literally just, I, I ran into a founder at a conference who told me that he didn't like my criteria 
for only investing in New York. And, you know, in the, in the grand total of the 35 seconds that he'd spend thinking about it versus the 10 years that I, 10 plus years that I've been in and around venture, he told me that my strategy was a bad strategy. And, you know, what I, what I said to him was, I said, okay, if I'm located in New York, probably like three quarters of my deal flow, three quarters of my deals are going to be New York based investments, right? So if I opened up past New York, maybe I could do 20% more deals. But I asked him, I said, if I opened up past New York and I not only took meetings from other people, but also advertised the fact that I will take a meeting and do a deal anyway, how many multiples more companies would, would pitch me? Probably several. And I, just from a, a time trade-off, there's no way it's worth it for me to vet three times as many companies to do 20% more deals. Like, I just can't make that work from a time perspective. So I, I think you, you have to carve out some limitation to be able to manage the deal flow at the early stage. In later stages, I think the deal flow is more easily vetted by lower level people, right? So you can, if you're a growth stage investor, somebody who requires revenues and someone who wants to look at, you know, your previous three years of EBITDA growth, you can throw an entry level analyst on that and they can vet a lot of the deal flow and vet things like market size. Um, but in the early stage, there's not enough for a junior person to go on. And right. so you have to limit yourself in some way, whether it's geography, whether it's sector, whether it's a... Yeah, otherwise I just think there's too much deal flow. Yeah, yeah. so to that point, do you believe in the, the philosophy that you must see a certain number of companies for every one that you invest in? Um... I don't know if there's a magic number, but you certainly need to figure out why doing a certain percentage of the deals in a certain sector should be a good bet. In other words, if I were only focused on e-commerce in New York, which I'm not, then I'd have to say, all right, well, how many deals are there? How many e-commerce deals in New York are there in any given year? And do I have the capacity to see enough of them to put together a 30-company portfolio or 20-company portfolio in X amount of years? So more so than seeing enough dogs to say, in, in where I'm fishing, is, is there enough success? So that, you know, if I'm trying to pick the, the winners, uh, you know, because there's going to be an error rate, right? And so if, if I come up with a criteria, in which case there is, only 10 companies per year that fit into my criteria and I have to do 20% of those deals, well, then I better have a strategy that makes me the partner of choice for those deals because, you know, there's only 10 and I got to do 20% of them. Like, that's just, that's incredibly difficult. Um, but there are other funds, for example, if you look at like a, like a Mesa Plus that has limited the number of co-investors that they will work with. And so they went to their limited partners and they said, you want access to deal flow from the following funds and we are going to become a, a co-investor of choice for those funds. And they have a, a list of funds that they work with. And so they take a lot less deal flow because if you don't already have one of those people involved in your funds, 
in your in your deal, then there's no reason to pitch them directly. And and so they've set up a strategy that works for them that, that limits the deal flow, but that they feel still gives them access to quality deals. So what they probably spend a disproportionate amount of time doing is networking with other VCs to say, hey, when you see a media deal, uh, you people in our group of 30, you, you should definitely send it to us. And oh, by the way, we'll respond to you in 48 hours, which to me is a good enough reason to send them a deal if I'm on that list. Yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated by some of these other approaches. Hopefully, you know, we can dive into that on another podcast and figure out sort of the, the motivations and the strategy there. But um, do you have any uh, recommended resources or um, anything on the topic of deal flow that you would suggest to the audience? Yeah, I, I think it's all about firsthand research. And if you were starting a fund or starting investing and you came up with your criteria, uh, do some back testing. You know, this is, this is a public market phenomenon where you know you come up with your strategy and then you go back over time and say, okay, if I had this strategy over the last five or ten years, you know, how would I have done based on my criteria? And what you can do is go back in the venture market and see who raised money and said, oh, well, if I had this criteria, you know, certainly. You know, um, if I have this criteria of doing early stage hardware deals, then, you know, I def- in New York, then I definitely would have seen or looked at Canary. And then I would go to those founders and say, tell me your fundraising process and try and research where could I have seen that deal? How could I have gotten that? Oh, okay. They pitched at the hardware meetup. Great. And so, you know, that that's on my list of people to talk to, to reach out to, to research. There's a maybe there's a conference that a disproportionate number of deals seem to come out of, so I, I got to be involved in that. You know, I haven't seen too many people literally write about the process of getting deal flow, but certainly it is researchable if you're willing to go company by company with interviews and firsthand knowledge, or even just email and say like, hey, if I had this fund, how could I have gotten in touch with you? And how would you have been aware of me? And how would I have been aware of you before your race? I, I think that would be really instructive. That message has certainly come through. I'm getting inspired to be more reflective about my own processes. I think I'm, yeah, like like a lot of us, always forward-looking and on to the next one and not really yeah. assessing where did I find the good ones and uh, how could I have been involved earlier on. So great and, feedback. And then, yeah, I think the other key... The other key there, too, is also ask them, at that time, what would I have had to bet on, right? And, and I, anytime I turn down a deal that then goes on to, to exit or raise a lot of money, I always reach out to the entrepreneur and say, hey, you know, you, you proved me wrong, good job, or whatever. And, and I remember I, I had seen, I reached out to the team at Give Forward, which I think might be, might have come out of a Chicago incubator, actually. And... I saw them two years before they raised, and I, I forwarded the turndown message to them. And I was like, hey, guys, good good job for, for getting there. And they're like, wow, I can't believe you remembered. And what they said to me was, you know what? We weren't ready to pitch that. Like, we didn't have our story together. We didn't know our market. I'm not – like, we would have turned us down, too, at the time. And that's wow. a key criteria, too. It's not just knowing who's successful now and say, could I have gotten that deal flow? Is what was knowing what I knew then? Could I have pulled the trigger? Which is an entirely different conversation. You'll find it's incredibly difficult at the time to make some of those bets. 
Huh. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. All right. Well, so switching gears, uh, Charlie, why don't you tell us more about what you're currently up to at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures? Yeah, sure. So I am 14 deals into what will be an approximately 32-deal portfolio. Um, If you come back to me in two months, I might be up at 20. It's been an interesting year, actually. I've only done one sort of real deal all year, and now all of a sudden I have six that are like, look like they're going to close in the next two months. So I'm going to be... Really busy over the next few months, um, and then and, and this kind of thing it, it really does ebb and flow. You you can't worry too much about you know that you're not liking anything because all of a sudden you turn around and be like, oh my god, I like this one too. I can't believe like I have this many deals in the, in the pipeline. So you just kind of get to be patient because it's going to be lumpy for whatever reason. Um, it is an eight point three million dollar fund on a three-year investment life cycle. So what that means is I started investing in the fourth quarter of 2012. So I will, um, you know, likely be back to market at the end of next year. That, of course, is not a any kind of a general solicitation for, uh, for any kind of fund or <laughs> yeah. investment vehicle. <laughs> um, so my email address is on my website. And... and you know, so I'm on a good pace to sort of put the money to work. And, and you know, so far, so good. You know, I'm doing early-stage deals in and around New York City. The criteria is really if you if you have yet to raise $750,000 in a previous round, then you're good to pitch. And why I set the number there is there's no real definition of friends and family, seed, angel, you know, early-stage, whatever. I've taken meetings where somebody's come to me and said, yeah, you know, we only did friends and family. And I said, oh, okay, how much did you raise? And they said, two and a half million dollars. Wow. Said, wow. I, I, I wish I had friends and family like that. <laughs> yeah, right. It would have been a lot easier to raise, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so I just basically have picked a number. And I said, if, if you've already raised and put 750 grand to work, like that is a real round and you should have accomplished enough to be past taking... $250,000 checks for me. You should be at a Series A stage. Hmm. And and so that's a 
you know, it's an arbitrary line in the sand, but at least it's something you can kind of stick to and keep yourself a little disciplined about it. And, uh, you know, so far so good. I mean, you know, not, not every portfolio company is performing, but there's been three Series A's so far. And at least on paper, the portfolio on the whole is, is worth about 2X. And that's just based on those three upticks alone. So they've been, you know, pretty sizable increases in valuation. You know, there's a few real standout companies, which the, the way the math works is that a small number of companies are going to generate most of your returns. And so I think companies like Tiny Bop and Canary and Floored uh, all have the potential to be fund returning type companies. You know, and then and then, then there's other companies like like Baker and Social Sign-In that are ready to take their next step into a Series A and, and have good early traction. And you know, Ringley is is one of those companies. And so, uh, if I can get a crop of companies like that in every 14 that I do, I'm, I'm going to be just fine. Sounds like a lot of opportunity in New York. A lot of attractive deal flow. Good to hear about that, and good to. Good to connect with uh, with some folks out in New York. So, if we could cover any topic on the podcast here, what topic do you think should be addressed, and who would you like to hear speak about it? That is an interesting question. I am most interested in ways that people can cut through the noise. I think there is a lot of stuff written and said about venture. There is a wide range of experience in venture, right? You, you'll see the, the startup panel of how to raise money from three startups who've each participated in one round of financing in their entire lives. And so, you know, I, they're not necessarily the experts, but they're willing to get up on a panel. So I think there's a lot of people who walk out of an experience of pitching that will tell you what happened that they don't really know, right? They'll say, well, that person turned me down because of X, Y, and Z reason. And what they didn't hear from the founder was, uh, from the VC was, they just doesn't have a very good personality. They're not going to tell them that in the meeting. Yeah, sure. So, so I think there's an aspect for both founders and, and new potential investors of, you know, how, do you, how do you figure out who actually knows what they're talking about and I, I think it would be actually interesting to hear how the people in the media do it, right? Like a, like a, like a Jordan Crook from uh, TechCrunch or, uh, you know, Aaron Griffith, you know, and actually probably the, the most experienced person is Kara Swisher. Right? Um, although I will say that I, I used to run a career-related podcast and when I was working on a startup in the career space, I did actually get you, Kara, and uh, she's so direct and to the point, you better have 50 questions to fill up 20 minutes because <laughs> she, will, she will have Twitter-sized answers and you will be done with your interview with very direct answers in about 10 minutes and then she'll be on to the, the next thing. I mean, she's, an, she's a great person, but she's incredibly direct. Wow. You got Andreessen who, uh, who can fit a tome inside of 10 minutes and then you got Kara who uh, (laughs) (laughs) gives you the short Twitter answers. Funny. Okay. So uh, for someone who's new to startup investing, what advice would you give? 
this is going to sound incredibly self-serving, but start out with a fund. You know, if, if you are looking to make direct investment in a company, you're, you're more than welcome to do that. But I would be a fund investor either first or in conjunction. And I would make it a small enough fund that they're actually going to answer the phone when you call. And that, that you may even have an opportunity to do some co-investing side by side. I think for a couple of reasons. One is you want to see firsthand somebody going through this process of doing what you're about to do. And it's very difficult to learn just from, you know, what you read about or what people see. Like, you just, you want to get the real story, right? When, when somebody invests in something and it, and it doesn't work, you want to be able to have a real conversation with that person and say, what went wrong there? And you want to see it all the time. And, you know, the, the person who's funds you invest, they'll, they'll tell you. You know, they'll, they'll, you'll learn it in real time. Um, if it's, the fund is small enough and there's co-investment opportunity, it really helps you on the deal flow because then you can get a vetted stream of deals. If it's a seed fund, they're happy to have co-investors around the table with them. And so you don't have to do the work of seeing the 2,000 deals a year that I've seen. You can just shuffle through the 30 deals that I'm going to put in front of my LPs that I'm doing and pick the five you really like or the five that resonate with your sector or anything else. And then secondarily, it, it forces you to put some money to work. You have to write a check, but you automatically get the diversification. Right? I, I, I tell my investors, obviously no promises, but you can lose all your money investing in five deals as an angel. But in a, in a fund, I'm only, I won't tell you who it is, I'm only aware of one fund in my 10-plus years of being in the venture market that literally did not return a dollar. Wow. Um, so if I'm investing in 30 plus companies, if I'm really bad at this, you're probably going to at least get 50 cents on the dollar back. Wow. So you give your LPs discretion on which placements they make with which startups? No, 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 no. So I, sorry, I make a bet from the fund. Right. And right. then in addition to that, if they want to invest, obviously it's up to the entrepreneur to take them. Right? I, I don't force it upon any entrepreneur. But so, for example, in the, the, the lead round of, of Canary, the connected home security device that set the record on Indiegogo and then raised a $10 million round of, of financing from COSLA, that t- after I committed, I sent them to, I, I did a phone call with my LP and Basically, anybody who was a fund investor had an opportunity to be in that deal. And and what was nice for them is if you wanted to write a $25,000 check into that company, they probably would have taken it. I mean, they wouldn't have taken that money if you reached out cold and set up a meeting and did a lunch. And, you know, from a time and effort perspective from the founder, they were looking for bigger checks. But as an add-on to my check, if somebody said, hey, yeah, you know, so-and-so from your fund said they want to come in too, so I sent them the deal docs and they signed them, they already wired me the money, you could have got in. From the founder's perspective, so long as they had the capacity, they were more than willing to get a vetted stream of LPs, right? They trust that I have a decent bunch of folks in my fund. And, you know, from the LPs' perspective, uh, you know, they're seeing some interesting deal flow. So, so yeah, I, I, I offer... I mean, it's a little bit like the Angelist Syndicate, only I don't charge any fees or carry for that. So long as you write a check into the funds, 
you know, I kind of want to make my LPs happy, especially for fun two and fun three and whatever. Sure. Yeah. And I also tell them, look, you know, you, you got to do your own work here. Obviously, I'm going in. I think it's a good deal. But, you know, the one deal they co-invest with me and put in as much money as they put into the fund could be a bad deal. Sure, sure. Well, good. Well, you know, every time I talk with folks out in New York, they seem to mention you. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for the time and for the insights here. So what is the best way for listeners to connect with you or, or follow you? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that it's always nice when someone follows along. Because then if they attempt to connect, they at least have a sense of who I am and what I'm up to. If you're reading my blog and my Twitter and you don't realize that I'm kind of a direct and upfront guy, you shouldn't take it as a surprise when I respond by email. So, you know, following is kind of a prerequisite. At least get somewhat familiar with me that I'm the kind of person you actually want to be talking to. And at the end of the day, email, as broken as it is, is still the best thing. It's charlie at brooklynbridge.vc. And if if you don't hear from me and a week has gone by, you're always welcome to read forward and say, hey, not sure if you saw this. You know, I try and get things right away. But as that great post that somebody wrote that had to email busy people, it's, it's not that I don't want to hear from you. It's just that, you know, I give away money for a living and a lot of people wind up in my inbox. <laughs> yeah, right. There's no lack of people pursuing you for the money. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, good. Well, shoot him an email if you want to reach out to Charlie, or you could also follow him on Twitter at, at @ceonyc. You know, he gives great flavor of the startup scene as well as some good context on Brooklyn and New York City. Love to see his tweets every day. So, um, head over to his blog too. It's thisisgoingtobebig.com. Charlie, again, thanks. Hope to have you back again soon. Cool. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, as always, Charlie is one of the most transparent people in the venture industry, and I hope he knows how much I appreciate having him on. Uh, let's do a quick recap of three main items that we covered. Number one, it's often about disqualifiers more so than it's about qualifiers. Uh, much of the time, there is clear criteria that isn't met, which makes it inappropriate for Charlie as a venture investment. Uh, this doesn't mean the startup is not going to be successful but maybe it doesn't make sense from a venture capital perspective. Uh, maybe the market isn't big enough. Maybe the skill set required is a very difficult thing to do, or the founders don't have the appropriate skill set. Maybe the target buyer doesn't have a role in which they can make rational decisions based on the value that the startup is selling. Uh, maybe the type of product has particular friction with that type of buyer, like in his example of selling tech to a local pizza joint. And finally, is the plan appropriate for the resources available? Here's where he brought up the example of building an elevator to the moon. Clearly, the talent, partnerships, regulatory, and money required may be far greater than what an existing team has or can achieve with a fundraise. Remember that the under-ask, i.e. asking for too little money to reach the proposed milestone, is very common in the early-stage startup world. Okay, number two takeaway, filter early. Determine a clear set of hurdles or criteria that's pretty basic and easy to get from the startup up front. This way you can quickly filter out deal flow early and not waste your time taking meetings with startups that you'll never fund. Uh, if you have a website or an email address where many startups connect with you, 
create a simple form with your key inputs. For example, let's say you only invest in companies that are business-to-business, software, enterprise sales, in the financial technology sector. Um, And let's say you require them to have revenue generation and founders that previously worked in this space. It would be very easy to set up a list of all these factors and ask any startup that contacts you to fill it out and send it back. Upon quick review, you could easily eliminate a great number of startups and tell them exactly why. You can also potentially get some intangible feedback based on their response format and response time. Uh, Did they fill out the form correctly? Did they send the form back to you in a timely manner or did it take them a week? Any of this data is great to get up front because it can accelerate your nose and help you focus your time on the strong candidates. All right, number three, Charlie mentioned how if he were a time traveler, what day would he have to be present to get the deal? And he estimated 18 to 24 months when he spoke. After our interview, Charlie went back and looked at all his deal flow data and published an article about it on his blog, which I'll include in the show notes and strongly urge you to give it a read. It turns out it took an average of 821 days from First Connect, or about 26 months, and 162 days from pitch, or about five months. His initial estimates were pretty close to the actuals. Interestingly, Charlie says that his average turnaround time these days on saying yes is probably within a week, but often it takes longer due to either the process of gathering other investors for a round or meeting the entrepreneur before they've really decided what they want to raise or even before they have a deck. For this exercise, Charlie went back across the 21 investments he'd made both at First Round and at Brooklyn Bridge, which dates back to January 28, 2010, when he closed on Backupify. He looked at when he first met the company, when it closed, and what connection he made to be in a position to get the deal in the first place. For example, while he closed on the seed investment in TinyBop on November 19, 2012, He met Raul two years earlier at the first Brooklyn Beta in 2010, even before he was working at the company. So upon tracing the specific sources of deal flow, his results were interesting. In order of greatest source to least source, here's where he found his startups. So tied for number one were events and non-VC intros. They each accounted for 33.3% of all startups that he eventually invested in. Number three were inbound connections, coming in at 14.3%. And tied for number four, the last two sources of deal flow were outbound and intros from other VCs, which both came in at 9.5%. So while every investor's deal flow source breakdown is going to be different, It's great that Charlie is so transparent and can give the rest of us insight into where those startup intros often come from. All right, let's wrap it up with a tip of the week. This week, we're going to talk about purchasers versus users and how you should invest in startups that know the difference. So consider the difference between users and buyers. I frequently see during Q&A evaluation of a startup that one of these two groups is completely ignored, and often it's the buyer. Naturally, we all see a product, we consider its use, and we think about the key benefit to the end user. However, this fails to acknowledge a key component of success, the purchase process. 
Let's consider some examples. Think of when hospital procurement purchases a new device to be used by doctors. Think of when a wife purchases new deodorant to be worn by her husband. Or consider when corporate selects a new sales CRM for their organization. In each of these situations, the purchasers and users are different, and their motivations are different as well. If we think about the medical device, the hospital may care about cost and data collection, while doctors care about ease of use and efficacy. A wife purchasing deodorant may care about price and branding, while her husband's likeliness to use the product depends on the smell and length of protection. For the CRM example, a CEO and head of sales may care about measuring leads, conversions, and sales effectiveness, while the salespeople using the program may consider the usability, the time spent recording activities instead of selling, and the platform's accurate reflection of sales effectiveness. The reality is that if users reject a product, the product may sell initially, but it's likely to die a slow death. If purchasers reject a product, it may never get off the ground in the first place, no matter how beneficial it may be to end users. So when evaluating startups for investment, keep in mind the following. The branding, positioning, and ideal of the product has to appeal to the purchaser. The usability, appropriateness, and key benefit needs to appeal to the user. The marketing, promotion, and messaging needs to appeal to the purchaser, while the function, efficiency, and unmet need fulfillment needs to appeal to the user. Often startups neglect the difference between the two, maybe because they haven't analyzed the workflow from the beginning of the purchase process until the product's end of life. And because of that, they're either trying to sell to the wrong person or the end user is receiving benefits that aren't designed for them. Ultimately, both the purchase process and user experience must be positive or it'll be another great investment that, for some reason, just never panned out. That's it for today. Remember to jump on the site at fullratchet.net for show notes and links mentioned today. You can also sign up for the newsletter there or by emailing newsletter at fullratchet.net. And give me a follow on Twitter. I created a new handle for the show. It's at the full ratchet. Next week, we're talking angel groups, what they are, how they work, and the value that they provide to individual angels. Until then, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next week.